We are uh, continuing our journey through the book of First Thessalonians, and we've reached the point in our text where the sermon is about sex, and Pastor Robert has left out. <laughs> Such is the life of an assistant pastor. Turn with me to First Thessalonians chapter 4, begin reading with verse 1, we'll read down through verse 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and begin reading with verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for the joy that we have had to worship in song and in reading of your word, and as we come to the preaching of your word, we thank you that indeed you have spoken, and your word is timeless. It is timelessly relevant to every generation, every scenario that we as mankind might face. And so, Father, I do pray as we come to the reading and the preaching of your word that you would be with me and enable my lips to articulate the word in such a way that you would be glorified and that you would be honored. And Father, we, take, we pray that you take this, your word, and make it productive and fruitful in our lives. For we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen. Title of the sermon this morning, Gospel Purity. Within the Christian church, I fear that there are two extremes that sometimes we have a tendency to vacillate between one or the other. One is the extreme of focusing so much on the fact that we are justified by grace through faith alone that we neglect the call to gospel purity, leading to a liberal view of our responsibilities as a Christian. Or the other extreme is that we focus so much on purity that we neglect the work of God's grace, ultimately leading to a legalistic view of our salvation. And both scenarios are incorrect. Both views are unbiblical and do not do the gospel justice. A biblical understanding of gospel purity, as we have just read here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, free, uh, reveals that we are freed from both extremes. That gospel purity frees us from being legalistic or from being liberal. That it originates in the very gospel of God. The good news that we have been visited. That God so loved us that he gave his only son to die for us. 
Gospel purity can be defined and is defined by the Apostle Paul here in our passage as this simple definition. Gospel purity is the call of God to pursue the will of God for the pleasure of God. So when we think of how Paul uses this term throughout the text and really throughout the book, he focuses on these three elements, that it is the call of God to pursue the will of God for the sake of the pleasure of God. He offers this definition, and like any good teacher, he takes us to the end and then works his way backwards. In fact, in the first two verses of the text, which we just read, we saw that his primary focus was on the pleasure of God, which is where we end up. And then he walks backwards by focusing on the will of God, and then finally by concluding with the call of God, which ultimately is where we begin in our definition of gospel purity. So to understand, to flesh this out a bit and understand really what the Apostle Paul is teaching, I'd like for us to isolate all three and to look at them in greater detail here in our text. So we'll look at the pleasure of God, verses 1 through 2, the will of God, verses 3 through 4, uh, and then finally uh, the call of God, verses 6 through 8. Okay, so first, point one there of your notes, if you have the bulletin, is the pleasure of God. We see that Paul begins this passage with a word that the English Standard Version, if you're using the ESV, translates as finally. Uh, if you're using other versions, they may translate it differently. Uh, the actual Greek word is really, uh, it, it provides the connotation of now. Not so much finally as if this is the last comment that I have to make, but there's a definite distinction that Paul is making in the text that he's really been giving an introduction up to this point in time. Maybe a lengthy introduction. Um, but he's been giving an introduction up to this point. And then he really settles into the heart of his argument. So instead of reading finally, and perhaps you can read it in that way, that he's saying, now we reach the heart of what it is I have to share with you. Now, brothers. And then he asks. He exhorts. The idea is that Paul is giving uh, an exhortation, but it's more than just simply an encouragement. It's an exhortation that comes with an emphasis. It comes with a focus. In fact, Paul says, we ask and urge, and the two words in the Greek are actually synonyms, but they're combined to show emphasis, that Paul is saying, we ask and we urge you that as you receive from us how you ought to walk in the please God, just as you are doing, that you so do more and more. In other words, he points them back to the fact that they have received the very word of God. We saw this in weeks past, whenever Paul said he came among them proclaiming the gospel of God, that the gospel was from God. And now he informs the church at Thessalonica that his motive for gospel proclamation is the same as his motive for gospel purity. Remember, when we looked at that particular passage early on in the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, he told them that his motive for gospel proclamation was an audience of one, was seeking and obtaining the pleasure of God. And so he also says that that same motive drives his desire, drives his teaching, lies at the very heart of gospel purity. We are to seek God's pleasure. And so radiating from the entire epistle of 1 Thessalonians is a conscious awareness that life is to be lived before an audience of one. That all of life as believers is to be lived before God. 
He's already established the fact that God's work in our life, his work of justification, is one that God himself singularly does and accomplishes. He points to the fact that God's gracious work of sanctification is a possibility in chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. And here he discloses the very heart, the reason, the impetus behind godly living or gospel purity. And in this regard, he's very similar to Christ, who in his gospel, in John's gospel, chapter 14, uh, verse 15, said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, that he, he exhorts the church at Thessalonica to walk in a manner worthy of their calling because of a desire to please God, because of a love, an all-consuming passion and love for God. It comes with an acknowledgement as well. He says, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. In other words, do not think that yesterday's effort will make up for today. You can't look back and say, well, I made an effort yesterday, so it's good enough. No, he's admonishing them to grow in their faith, to grow in sanctification, to put on Christ, and to seek the pleasure of God. And so that's the end, and we have to keep that end in sight before we really get into the nitty-gritty of what Paul is going to share with us. The overarching purpose of all of the Christian life is that we pursue the pleasure of God. We do not live in pursuit of our own pleasure. We do not live in the pursuit of the pleasure of others, but rather we live in the pursuit of the pleasure of God. We seek to please Him. We seek to live a life that is holy and acceptable before him. And so this leads me to the second point, which is there um, in verse 3, where he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. So he's taking us backward from the purpose for which we should do all things, the purpose for which we should pursue gospel purity, which is the pleasure of God, and he takes us backward to the fact that this is the will of God that we should walk in a manner uh, that is worthy, that uh, the will of God is our sanctification. And then he elaborates on this. He explains what he means. He says that you may abstain from sexual immorality and that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrong his brother in this matter. So he points to the fact that the will of God is that we are to grow in sanctification. Paul hones in on sexual purity. We may be interested or perhaps intrigued by that. There are a plethora of sins, no doubt, that he could have picked on when it came to the church there at Thessalonica that would have been equally as relevant. But he instead chooses to talk about sexual purity in the context of sanctification. Now, why do you think he would do that? Well, in a sense, he gives us his reason in another epistle. If we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, where uh, Paul is continuing addressing this theme, although to a different church, the church at Corinth, and he says this, he says, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him, referencing our union with Christ as believers. And then he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? So it's the same idea that our body belongs to God, that we should live in light of seeking 
his pleasure and not our own. But he makes a distinction about sexual sin and how it is set apart from others. So there are three comments that I want to make, particularly about why Paul hones in on sexual immorality and what you and I can learn about that in regards to sanctification. The first is that we must understand that Paul, what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that sexual sins are worse than any other sin. Because all sin ultimately is cosmic treason. It is rebellion against a holy and just God and deserving of death. What he is saying is that there is something unique about sexual sin that distinguishes its consequences on the individual. In other words, though all sin is equally detrimental to the God of creation, not all sin is equally consequential in its effects. All sin is equally detrimental, but the consequence of all sin is not the same. And so this is what the Apostle Paul is honing in on. The second thing, and the second reason that um, I believe Paul hones in on sexual immorality is we must understand the statement he makes to the church in Corinth in view of the context of 1 Corinthians, which since we're not preaching through Corinthians, I'll just pause very quickly to say that Paul states in verse 16 that when one engages in sexual relations with another, he or she is joined to that person in a mysterious union, a mysterious intimacy. And then he immediately states what we just read there in Scripture, that he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. The fact that sexual intimacy is used consistently throughout Scripture as an analogy for the relationship between Christ and his church is indicative of a higher level of sexuality than most of us understand. In other words, the Apostle Paul, the Bible, God has a higher view of sex than you and I do. So much so that it, its consequences are distinguished from all other sin. Not the fact that it's sin itself, because sin is sin, but its consequences are distinguished from other sins. Why? Well, thirdly, I believe he hones in on sexual immorality because the sexual impulse has a way of controlling the body and shaping the identity that distinguishes it from other human desires. All human desires are pervasive. They drive us to do different things. But if you think about the sexual impulse, it has a way of controlling the body and shaping our identity that distinguishes it from others. And so when we look at our text here in 1 Thessalonians, he's referencing the control of the body, that we should not be a slave to our desires, that we should not be a slave to the pursuit of pleasure, but rather by submitting to God in holiness, seeking the pleasure of God, that we should live in a way that pleases him. So at the heart of sexual purity, and this is really what Paul is conveying uh, as he progresses throughout the text, is a surrendering of the pursuit of all pleasure to God. Now, I'm going to repeat that and then say it in a different way. Sexual, the heart of all sexual purity is the pursuit of all pleasure in light of who we are called to be. Surrendering the pursuit of all pleasure to God. Now, another way of saying that is that all sex 
is worship. When you first hear that, it may sound somewhat odd. But the reality is that all sex is worship. What do I mean by this? Well, um, Paul David Tripp wrote an excellent book, by the way, on this very topic, a book entitled Sex and Money. And in this book, he says this, and I'm going to quote him. He says, in sex, you are always worshiping something. Your sexual life is shaped by the worship, either your sexual life is shaped by the worship of God, the worship of self, the worship of the other person, or the worship of what you get out of sex. What this means is that in sex, you and I are always surrendering our hearts to something. You see, if sex is all about you worshiping you, it will never work as God intended. If sex is about you worshiping your partner, then sex will never work as God intended. Or if sex is about worshiping what you get out of sex, it will never work as God intended. Worship of anything other than God always ends in the worship of self and the individualization of things that are designed by God to connect us to something greater, bigger than our wants, needs, and pleasures, end quote. In other words, sex is worship because at the very heart of this act is the pursuit of whose pleasure we are seeking to obtain. And so Paul capitalizes on this a bit more when he says that surrendering to one's selfish pursuit of pleasure is actually attributed to those who do not know God. He says this in, in verse 5, the last part of that verse, when he says that you and I should, should not be controlled by our body, but that we should control our body, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So he attributes surrendering to one's selfish pursuit of pleasure as an attribute of those who do not know God. Now, I know that for many of us, this is a very difficult concept, a difficult, perhaps, thought to grasp. And I would suggest that it's because our view of sexuality is far below, far less that of Scripture. That we do not see sex in light of what the Bible teaches. In fact, we live in a society where we are inundated constantly with the identity of one's sex that Sexuality has become a core characteristic of who we are as individuals and that one's choice in the gender of your partner is increasingly portrayed throughout our culture and throughout society as a human right. That it's something that is endemic to the individual. That you have the right to choose. But the Bible offers a view of sexuality that is far more exalted than anything that is currently taught or understood in our society at large. And the ultimate pleasure that is sought from sex, according to the Bible, is that of God's, not man's. This means that we are not free to subjectively choose our partner, who we have sex with, the gender of the partner, and how or when sex occurs. The broad parameter for sexual purity, according to Scripture, is confined to one man and one woman within the sacred bonds of matrimony, of marriage. But even then, that's the broad parameter which sets us on a conflict, a, a conflicting course with our society at large. The sexual revolution of the 50s and 60s basically that says that your ability to have sex with anyone that you choose is a, 
human right, and then today the extrapolation from that that you ought to be able to choose your, your, the gender of your partner, and that's being trumpeted or triumphed in our culture as a human right as well. But all of that flies in the face of God's definition, of the biblical definition of sex and sexuality. So the broad parameter for sexual purity, according to Scripture, is that it is to be confined between one man and one woman in the bond of holy marriage. That's the broad parameter. Why do I say that? Because even within marriage, there is no room for sexual exploitation. There is no room for surrender to the pursuit of one's own pleasure at the expense of another in gospel purity, period. And so what the Apostle Paul is driving home here is that ultimately when we worship, when we live our life, and by the way, all of life is to be lived in an attitude of worship. There's corporate worship, which we do together on Sunday as we've just done and as we're doing. But then we live our life as a worship to God, as a sacrifice presented to him. We conduct our life in a manner that reflects our true identity, not the identity that is propagated within culture and society at large, but the identity which is given to us in Scripture, our new identity in Jesus Christ. Now, I could talk at depth about the same-sex marriage discussion because it is an issue which is pervasive within our society. And it is relevant to this discussion. In fact, the Apostle Paul has a lot to say about that. And I think we could even apply the verse which we just read to this discussion. However, for the sake of time, I'm simply going to state that pursuing sexual relationship with anyone other than what is permitted in Scripture um, is misusing sex. Or I could speak at length, and perhaps, God willing, if, if I had time, I would, about the horrors of the sex trade, which are pervasive not only within our country, but internationally around the world. But I, I think it's plain, according to Scripture, that those who engage in that do so um, at the plight of the human soul. So instead, what I would like to speak to this morning are, are three groups of people that I am convinced all three of you are in here. The first group are those who are quite uncomfortable with this whole discussion and are just waiting for 12 o'clock. And to you, I simply encourage you to bear with me. The second group are those of you who bear on your heart the scars of sexual exploitation, either that were perpetrated against you or perhaps that you yourself have been responsible for. Perhaps it's happened in the distant past and you're still haunted by it even though you have surrendered those sins to Christ and you have trusted him for pardon and forgiveness, but yet the skeleton is still there. That's the second group. And the third group are those of you who hear what I'm saying and yet find yourself addicted to the pervasiveness of pornography within our culture, within our society. You find yourself addicted to sexual sin, the grip of sexual addiction, regardless of what nature it may take, be it pornography or otherwise, controls and dominates your life. You, you assure yourself that it's fine, particularly in relation to pornography, because after all, no one else seems to be hurt. No one else is involved. But remember what we just said, that sex is worship. 
that according to the Apostle Paul, we are to pursue sanctification and that we are to become sexually pure, not sexually immoral. And so if we truly believe that all sex is worship, then it's not an aspect of who am I hurting, it's an aspect of who am I worshiping. Am I worshiping myself? Am I seeking the pleasure that comes from the moment? Or am I seeking to honor God with my body, with the pleasure of this world? Am I seeking to please God first and foremost for some ulterior motive? An awareness that such an addiction, by the way, is wrong is not enough to release you from it. In fact, it's probably just enough to crush you under a load of guilt and shame. And so I want to speak to you specifically as well this morning with the hope that we find in the gospel. I want to speak to all three groups, particularly the second and the third group. The first group, um, bear with me. But the second and third group, I believe this passage has a lot to say to where you are and to what you are experiencing. But before I speak to you individually, I want first to transition to the very last point that the Apostle Paul is making in the text, and that is the call of God. Because it is the very call of God itself, particularly for those of you who are in group two, that gives us the assurance that the Lord is the avenger of those who have been wronged. That the Lord is the avenger of those who've been wounded. And so when Paul talks about the call of God, he brings us home by reminding us that our call is one of holiness. He states, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, how in the world can we read that and get comfort? We get comfort because God has already done what he has asked you and I to do. He has already done for us in the work of Christ what he is asking us to do in the work of sanctification. Sanctification, after all, is living in identity, a new identity, but living like the people that you are. We are beloved, as John tells us in, in 1 John, uh, we are the children of God. That's our identity. And we should live out of that identity and exercise who we are. But also, verse 4a, the Apostle Paul states that God's will is that each one of you know how to control his own body. And he goes on to say that one's knowledge of God is, is, is how such control is possible, but it's not simply the knowledge of God. It's not simply the knowledge that certain sins, sexual impurities are wrong that enables us to overcome them. What is it about this passage that gives hope? It's the very end of it where Paul says that God has given us his Holy Spirit. In other words, you and I in our own might and power will never be able to break the chains of addiction, the chains of bondage that tie us to seeking our own pleasure. The only way that a love of self can be overcome is by a love of something greater. And what we see in the gospel is that you and I are to be consumed by a love for God. And it is only a love of God that drives us to seek his pleasure instead of our own that enables us to find liberation and to find liberty and help. So to those of you who are in group two, who are haunted by the past, it dominates the present. 
And there are cultural reminders all around us. In the generation where some of the top sellers are 50 shades of gray or 50 shades darker, we are constantly reminded of the exploitation of sexuality. We are constantly bombarded by the challenge to throw sexual purity out the window as a, as a custom of a bygone era. Instead, succumb to the pursuit of our own pleasure. But Paul reminds us that sex is greater than that. Paul reminds us that ultimately at the heart of who we are as Christians is a mission, a drive to pursue the pleasure of God. And so Paul tells us that it is God in Christ who is making all things new and that we have been set apart for him. That's the call to holiness. Holiness ultimately in biblical terms means that we are set apart, consecrated. And so if God has already set us apart for him, which is what we saw there in 1 Corinthians, that our body belongs to the Lord, then we know that he is going to give us by his Holy Spirit the enabling power to overcome whatever chains bind us to any lesser Lord. And so we see that. That's why we can read the words of the Apostle Paul and have hope. Because the Holy Spirit, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 11, is the spirit that raised Christ from the dead. So if the spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, that same spirit enables you and I to put on Christ. It enables us to overcome the love of ourself by a love much greater, a love for our Heavenly Father. So to those of you who are in group two who bear the scars of sexual exploitation on your heart, I encourage you, I admonish you to cry out to him, to cry out to God for mercy, and to ask that his Holy Spirit would enable you to worship wholeheartedly. For your identity is in the gospel, not what you have done, not what has been done to you, but it's in the fact that God so loved you that he gave his only son to die for you, knowing not only the sins that you have committed and those that were perpetrated against you, but also the ones that you yet will commit. And yet, as God, or as Paul says in Romans, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, looking at, again, the three elements here of the text, looking at Paul's definition of gospel purity, that it is the call of God to pursue the will of God for the pleasure of God, we can conclude with just a few points of application and admonishment to people in groups one and two. Practically speaking, let me say this. The pursuit of sexual purity looks different for your age and stage. Those of you who are teenagers, who are middle schoolers, let me encourage you to adhere to and to, and to live by the biblical de definition of sexual purity. You may say, well, I've already messed up. Well, the God that we serve is a God of love and justice and he's a God of grace and he will forgive and he will pardon and he will enable you not to find your identity in what you've done but rather to find your identity in what he's done which is to set you free from whatever sins bind you now for those of you middle schoolers and teenagers who are, are surrounded daily by the peer pressure to define sexuality other than what we've just seen in scripture 
let me encourage you that it will at times make you seem the outcast. But it's worth it. There are times in the life of a Christian when gospel obedience, biblical obedience means that we are swimming against the current. But the reward, not only the pleasure of knowing God, but also the pleasure of self-preservation, of enjoying sex within the parameters of that which is laid out in Scripture, is worth the wait. For those of you who are single, regardless of your age, let me admonish you that sexual purity means that, again, you pursue the pleasure of God above your own pleasure. It means that you see yourself, first and foremost, as a child of the king. It doesn't mean that your passions and desires are any less, but it does mean that your passions and desires, like every other aspect of your life, are to be subjected to the lordship of Christ in pursuit of his glory. Now, to those of you who are married, I encourage you to see sex as worship as well. Now, I don't mean that in the heat of the moment, you pause to pray. What I do mean is that when you think of sex, when you think of living a life in a worshipful way before God, that you seek to glorify him in all things. This means putting the feelings and needs of your spouse above your own. Living out the virtues of, of Ephesians when Paul tells the men to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Not to exploit your wife or wives not to exploit or misuse your husbands, but rather to submit to one another in love. Putting your spouse above yourself. Now if both if both individuals are doing that in a marriage, the beauty of it is that there's not one that's taking advantage of the other, but rather they live their life in mutual submission, mutual service before God. And quite frankly, you may begin doing that out of a love and respect for your spouse, but don't kid yourself, at the end of the day, you need a love that is greater than the love that you have even for your spouse to ensure that you Respond to your spouse with sexual purity. And that love ultimately is a love of God. And then finally, to those of you who bear the scars of sexual exploitation, I want you to remember that the Lord is the avenger. I want you to know that you have been called for the sake of pursuing God's will, which is ultimately pleasing him. And so as we live daily in this over-sexualized culture and we think about what the Apostle Paul has admonished us to do in the pursuit of gospel purity, I hope that not only would we define sexuality in light of the gospel, but also that we would define every act of our life as being lived in a worshipful manner before God and that our driving focus, our driving force is not the pursuit of my own pleasure, but is the pursuit of the pleasure of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning and bask in the truth of your scripture, bask in the truth of who you say we are, we realize that we come broken. We come 
as sinners, and we come looking to you for redemption, for healing, for hope. And so, Father, we ask that you would take our feebleness, that you would take our weakness, and that we would rely in your strength, that we would not pursue our own pleasure, but that we would live our life in a pursuit of the pleasure of God. And, Father, we pray that if there be any in here who find themselves in a situation of needing accountability, that they would have the strength to reach out to somebody in the church, a pastor or an elder or a brother or a sister, seeking consolation. For, Lord, you have designed us as your body to do that very thing. And so, Father, as we bask in your word, may you change our hearts so that we may indeed do your will for your pleasure and live according to this holy calling. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.